Lord, when we repent of our sins, having been awakened to our rebellion towards you by the Holy Spirit and embrace Jesus Christ in saving faith that justifies us before you and begins a sanctifying work until the day we are glorified in your presence. When this happens, Lord, we are in that moment until the end of our days recognizing that you are the God, the King, the Lord who is over us. That we are no longer the one who reigns over our own lives, but that we have appropriately recognized that the crown of our existence belongs on the head of King Jesus. And I pray, Father, that as we would submit to King Jesus, we would see the importance of submitting to those whom Jesus has placed over us in his sovereignty. Help us, Lord, to be a people who do not balk at honoring authority, but help us, Lord, to be a church that recognizes the goodness of it and that holds it up brightly before a world that rejects it. And I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. We might think that the Christian commitment to God-ordained sexuality is the ethic most contrary to our culture today. But I wonder if this isn't closely rivaled by the Christian commitment to God-ordained authority, wherein we humbly submit to those whom God, our ultimate authority, has placed over us. Is it not true that our culture attempts to disrespect and even outright reject human authority at seemingly every turn, encouraging children to resist the will of their oppressive parents, demanding that wives be free of the shackles of submitting to their husbands, and urging their side to heinously dishonor those who have been elected to political leadership. And yet in so many places, God commands things like Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. We live in an age that is anti-authority, an age that is unwilling to see God's wisdom in establishing right human authority for our good. And so... Passages like ours today might as well be written in a different language for most people in our culture. Because to them, it seems nonsensical to actually honor and obey the individuals whom God has placed over them. Which means that if we, Riverside, keep this passage and respect the authorities God has established, 
we will then stand out with vivid distinction in our day, which is precisely what we are called upon to do. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In 1 Timothy 5, we are still considering some local church responsibilities that are closely connected to church health. And these particularly have to do with how we treat each other in the church. If you recall from last week in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, Paul taught on how to approach confrontation with other believers in a wise way. In verses 3 through 16, he gave instruction for the care of widows in the congregation. And today, we will see that we must honor those who are over us if we are to be a healthy church. We'll be taught on how to rightly honor our pastors as well as the importance of respecting those in authority over our very livelihoods. So we'll consider two more local church responsibilities this morning. The first local church responsibility here is that healthy church life should include the honoring of faithful shepherds. In verses 17 through 25, we see that this is done in four ways. First, we should honor all those who have been placed into this office of elder. Look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This word, elder, as we have already seen in this book, is somewhat synonymous with the terms overseer and pastor. A biblical elder is a believing man in a local church who is distinguished by his godly character, by his ability to teach the Bible, by his aspiration to shepherd God's people, and by the affirmation given to him by his church to do so. He is called upon by God to care for his people by ministering the word, by guarding them against error, and by leading them in personal and corporate godliness. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. But elders are under-shepherds who are called by God through the selection of the church body to tend his precious sheep. This is an incredibly important role, one that carries tremendous responsibility, and it's one that should be honored. Now, we'll talk about this concept of double honor in verse 17 in a moment, but for this moment, simply consider the fact that any elder, any rightly appointed local church elder, is to be honored in his office. He is to be esteemed, respected, and even revered. Not because he is anything special in and of himself, but because he is the spirit-enabled, qualified man of God whom the Lord himself has placed over his people. In other words, he's not to be honored because you really, really like him. He is to be honored because God has qualified him and placed him over the church. You see, he's to be honored by extension, 
because you ultimately seek to honor God. He is not God. In fact, he is very, very far from it. But he is God's man for God's church. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul articulates this again. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And the first way that elders are honored is by giving them your esteem, your respect, and to some extent even, your reverence. Now, I'm sure we could think of all kinds of ways that this could be done. Listening intensely to his teaching, seeking to follow the model of his life, refusing to speak ill of him, refusing to listen to anyone who speaks ill of him, and obeying the whole group of elders when they attempt to lead the church in a biblical direction. The bottom line is there is a respect for these divinely appointed men who hold this divinely gifted office. And secondly, we should pay well those who labor well in this office. Verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. As we saw in verses 3 through 16, with regard to widows, this word honor used here by Paul often conveys more than simply an attitude of esteem and respect and reverence, as it can also refer to financial support. And this is clearly the case here in verses 17 and 18. This word rule is a translation from the Greek that perhaps comes off as somewhat domineering to our modern ears. But it simply means to exercise a position of leadership. Elders lead churches, and they primarily do so through their godly life example, through their careful Bible teaching, and through their guiding of the church in a biblical direction. If you remember back to chapter 3, we were taught that an elder must manage or lead, same word, his own family well if he is ever to properly lead or care for, rightly, the local church. So he is to prove himself to be a capable, godly leader even before he becomes an elder because leadership is the quality that defines his office. And those who rule or lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The idea of eldering well, or pastoring well, or shepherding well, is connected here with laboring at preaching and teaching. You see the connection there? This word, preaching, it carries the idea of word ministry that involves instructing the local church in God's word as it's taught and exhorted and applied to their lives. So an elder who labors well will be devoted to a quality, labor-intensive ministry of the word of God. This connecting word in verse 17 especially seems to further describe what elders who lead well look like. 
as this word probably means something like, that is. So, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That is, those who labor in preaching and teaching. It describes what good eldering looks like. Paul is telling us that to elder well is to labor hard at the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Thus, my friends, an elder is not a good elder because he has the most experience or because he has the best business acumen or because he has the most charming, winning personality. An elder is a good elder if he labors hard at preaching and teaching. He is committed to putting in hours upon hours to understand a passage of Scripture, to determine its context and structure and meaning and applicational value, and then he toils prayerfully to present it to the church in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ and actually is used by God to transform lives. He is also committed to teaching the entirety of the Bible to God's people, all 66 books, instructing them in all of God's words so that its rich, rich doctrine will not only sink in, but so that they will also be able to study it and perhaps even teach it for themselves. He is further committed to raising up other men who will also become elders by training them to know God, to live godly, and to grow in both their understanding and their communication of God's word. And beyond all of that, he counsels God's people with God's word. He comforts God's people with God's word. He rebukes God's people with God's word. And he defends the sheep with God's word. He is a man who labors hard with the Bible, God's word. That's a good elder. And if he does this, verse 17 tells us, he is then deserving of double honor. Now this doesn't mean that he gets double pay. Rather, this concept of doubling is often used in the scriptures to refer to ample or generous provision. This means that if an elder leads well by laboring at preaching and teaching, then he is to be honored through the ample, generous support of God's people who recognize that he has been designated by God to feed their souls with the word, guard them from life-destroying error, and guide them towards Christ-likeness. This is why in verse 18, Paul quotes scripture from both the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and the Lord Jesus in Luke 10, verse 7, when he writes, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In the law, when an ox was used for the threshing of the crops, they were to let it eat while it did so, implying that the one who labors should receive pay from his labor. And as Jesus said, the one who labors deserves his wage, meaning that one who works hard in their employment deserves to be supported. My friends, you have heard the expression, don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? 
Well, on the flip side, you should generously support the elder who feeds you. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11, Paul said, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, I have heard all kinds of interesting approaches to pastoral support over the course of my life in ministry. We should pay pastors small salaries so that they can relate to the sufferings of the poor people in their church. We shouldn't pay pastors too much because we need them to stay humble. We shouldn't pay pastors more than the church down the road because that seems to be the going rate. But what does verse 17 say? Let the elders who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The aim, it seems, should be to support such men with ample, generous provision. Now, there will be times, of course, when a church can't provide the support that it should. And sometimes, because of a pastor's first longing to see the gospel go forth, he will go without adequate compensation for the sake of his church or even take on additional employment. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul had a side hustle. He had a second vocation that he could turn to so that when he pastored, when he apostled in a local area, he could then have something to provide for his needs while he spread the gospel among those people. Nor does this mean that every elder should receive equal compensation. It is assumed, I think, from verse 17 that there are some elders who are particularly devoted to preaching and teaching who should receive the double honor of generous compensation. Other elders, however may have outside employment, and they will then carry less of the teaching burden and so receive less monetary support. And this is something I think that local churches can work through in determining how to best honor their elders. Third, we should be careful when accusing them. Look at verses 19 through 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now this instruction is closely in line with other New Testament teachings on church discipline. But it refers to elders especially because even more care is to be taken when a church disciplines one of these leaders. Matthew 18, verse 16, Jesus says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
And then here in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is, this is church discipline he's talking about here. He's connecting this to a sin issue in the life of one of God's shepherds. When any church member sins and refuses to repent, bringing about the necessity, the sad necessity, of the local church discipline, where that man or that woman is removed from the membership, it is a big deal. Because it communicates to the whole church and even to the watching world that this man or this woman's profession of salvation can no longer be affirmed by the church. And this is an even bigger deal when this sorrowful thing happens with an elder who is supposed to be a shepherd guiding God's sheep towards godliness. It's a big deal when it happens with anybody. How much more so when it's one of those men who has been set apart to be a pastor. If an elder persists in sin, or better, continues in his sin, and at least two to three church members have charged him with this sin, then... Assuming the church agrees, and as the verse says, admits this charge against him, he must then be rebuked in the presence of all. The rest of the church is to rebuke him together as the whole body of Christ, declaring that he is in sin and that he has undermined his role as an elder. And more than likely, this means that his ministry as an elder is over and probably that he'll be removed from the church. Because he persists in sin, he continues in sin, he won't repent. And the reason this is to be done, verse 20 says, is so that the rest may stand in fear. Church discipline, especially towards an elder, has a sobering effect among the church body, leading them to take even greater care with their own spiritual progress. It makes us recognize just how weak we are how capable we are of giving in to temptation. And as we see one man fall and have to be removed, we think, oh Lord God, help me, I need you. We turn to him in fearful trust. Now, there is a special danger when it's an elder who sins because some might already be partial towards him or against him due to his leadership position. You see, Christians still sin, sadly, and they may sin by already having attitudes toward that elder that will affect their willingness to invoke church discipline properly upon him. Some may think that he is the greatest thing since sliced bread and be inclined to stand by him even when he is clearly in the wrong. Others may already harbor skeptical attitudes about him, and they may eagerly welcome an opportunity to see the guy removed. Once again, both attitudes are terribly sinful. This is never how God's people should think and act towards themselves. And this is why, in verse 21, Paul gives Timothy and his church, by extension, the solemn charge before God the Father and Jesus Christ and even the elect angels, those angels who had not fallen and served the Lord, to honor this instruction by refusing to prejudge and by rejecting partiality. 
They are not to take sides beforehand. They are not to draw conclusions without a firm biblical basis. And they are not to be inclined one way or another simply because their past relationship with this man encourages them to do so. This is not how God's people are. We gauge everything by the word of God and not according to whether or not we have an affinity or a lack thereof with a man. So it's clear that great care should be taken when accusing an elder, and that's one way we honor him. And fourth, in verses 22 to 25, I think we see that we should be slow to ordain them. Look with me there in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Laying on of hands is a common New Testament expression for the act of ordination. When a man is formally set apart by the local church for the office of pastor, elder, overseer. When a man has proven his character, has demonstrated his ability to teach, and has expressed his God-given desire to shepherd, then it is a joyful occasion to set him apart as a church, laying hands upon him as a symbol of God's approval, and formally placing him into that role. It's a cause for great celebration. But this is not to be done hastily. You see, when we hastily add a man to such an office, failing to adequately assess his character, competency, and commitment, we then find ourselves in danger of being culpable in that man's sin. For we have rushed to add him to the eldership when he was not sufficiently tested and had not proved himself mature, making us as a church responsible for any damage that he might bring to the church. This word others in verse 22 refers to what belongs to another person. So it is that man's sin. But it says here that we would then take part in his sins Meaning, I think, that we would at least in part be responsible for the harm that his sin brought to the body of Christ. There is a responsibility among the church to make sure that the men we affirm to that office are truly qualified, capable, competent, committed to that office. And if we don't do that as a church family, we are bringing great danger upon ourselves of being a part of his sin. Timothy especially, as somewhat the lead pastor at the church at Ephesus, was to keep himself pure, especially in this area. He was to act in purity towards the Lord in all ways, but especially with regard to this area of seeing men appointed to the office of elder. He was essentially to take great care before he recommended that a man be ordained by the church into such a role. Which is why we at Riverside have tried to take it very seriously. We want to have a lot of time. We want to be able to really gauge their theology. We want to be able to watch their life. We want to be able to observe their teaching. We want to be able to make sure that their commitment is genuine and long-lasting. 
pray for us in that, that we would not recommend to you anyone who is not clearly ready for that role. And perhaps it was this talk of purity that prompted Paul in the next verse, verse 23, as an aside to personally encourage Timothy to take a little wine for his bodily ailments. Timothy may have been hesitant to do so in order to be a good example to his church, but Paul encourages him here to partake of a little wine to help his body. He's a guy who evidently had some stomach troubles. A little bit of wine would have helped him in that, but he's held off for the sake of trying to be a pure example to his church. Paul says, no, yes, be pure, be careful in this area, but Timothy, don't, please don't misunderstand. Do please take a little bit of wine to help yourself. Take the medicine that you need, Timothy. Then, in verses 24 and 25, Paul gives a strong rationale for why a church must never be hasty in ordaining elders. The sins of some people are not made clear until time has passed. For some people, their sinful tendencies are obvious, but for others, their sins will only be made clear later on after time has passed. Why should we not be hasty? Because there should be serious time observing a man to make sure we can see the course of his life, the trajectory that he is taking. And the same is true for good works, he says. For some people, their good works are immediately obvious, but for others, their goodness may seem hidden, though only for a time. This is precisely why it's important to be slow in ordaining elders to be able to observe an individual's character, competency, and commitment. So, healthy church life should include the honoring of faithful shepherds, and this should be done by respecting their office, by paying them well, by being careful about accusations, and by ordaining them slowly. Secondly, the second local church responsibility is that healthy church life should include the honoring of earthly masters. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. We must first grasp how this instruction connects to us today. And in some ways, this doesn't connect to us at all. The bond servants, which are being addressed here, or the word doulos in the Greek refers to a form of indentured servitude or slavery that was not only common in that day, but was an integral part of the first century socioeconomic world order. This Roman practice of indentured servitude was different from the slavery that was unfortunately all too common here in America during the 17th through the 19th centuries. They were slaves, and under the authority of their masters, but they were generally allowed to earn pay and save enough to eventually purchase their own freedom if they so desired. 
Now, Paul has already referred to the act of enslaving people as sin. Back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Enslaving people is in the list of sin that Paul gives us in chapter 1. It is not God's desire that innocent human beings, image bearers of God himself, have their freedom revoked with the demand that they serve another person against their will. It is not God's desire for human beings. However, since slavery was a part of the first century world, a world full of all kinds of wicked corruptions, Paul addresses here those who were enslaved in his day, instructing them on how to live godly, even in such a system. But though this doesn't directly connect to us, because I don't think anyone in here is a slave, I think we can take some indirect application from it. Because though none of us are slaves with masters over us, we all understand that to be employed in some vocation in this world is to have someone in authority over us. And how we respond to that authority is very, very important. According to verse 1, we must respect those who have been placed over us. Those who are under the yoke as bondservants are to regard their masters as worthy of all honor as theirs. This honor certainly refers to respect, but since it also brings their financial success, it likely also conveys that idea of monetary honor. They are to respect their masters, they are to seek the best for their masters, and they are to work hard for their masters. They are not to be lazy, apathetic, disruptive, or unhelpful. They're not to waste time. They're to be diligent. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And they are to do this, not because their masters are so wonderful or their masters are so deserving, but for a much bigger reason, it says. So that, verse 1, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The masters referred to in verse 1 are unbelievers. They have not accepted the merits of Christ for their lives, and they need desperately a clear testimony before them of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the way to honor God's name among these masters and the way to honor the teaching about Christ the good gospel of God is to honor these men by being worthy before them, respecting them, considering these men to be worthy of all human honor. In other words, how you approach your role and your master determines whether or not you honor the ultimate master, Jesus Christ. And it also determines whether or not you accurately communicate the validity of the gospel of Christ. If you are one who says... 
I am a servant of King Jesus, the ruler of all the world, the one who died and paid the price for my sins. And then you're disrespectful to the leader whom God has put over you. All that tells that leader is that what you believe in is phony baloney. It hasn't changed you one bit. You're just like everybody else, and you don't like submitting to authority. You say God's in control, God's sovereign, but you won't submit to the authority God, the sovereign one, has placed over you. It ruins your testimony. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our goal is that one day, even those who are not so great in our lives, those people we have a hard time appreciating, our goal is that one day they also will bow the knee in joy before King Jesus because they've embraced him as their Savior here and now. That's the goal. Your life is to be an evangelist right where you are, even if you hate your job. Though we are not slaves, praise God, we must adopt a similar attitude toward any employer who is over us. How we approach our role and our employers determines whether or not we honor our ultimate Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it also determines whether or not we accurately communicate the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a wayward world. They need people who respect the authority of God and in doing so, we'll respect all of the little authorities he's put over us. According to verse 2, this is where it hits home for the local church. We must doubly respect believers who are over us. The special danger here would be to think that since it's a believing master, and evidently that was the case in that day, since it's a believing master a member of the same church, that they can then be disrespectful to their brothers because their masters were required to respond to them in love. Grasp this. These bondservants would have had equal standing with their masters within the church, but they would have been considered inferior by everybody outside the church. You can see how that might have been a rather tough dynamic. And these bondservants may have been tempted to disregard the honoring of their masters because of their unity in Christ. But Paul says the opposite. They were to serve them all the better, he says, since their brethren would then benefit from their good service. Paul does not comment here on the socioeconomic system that was in place. That's not his point. Rather, his primary concern was that they honor God even within that broken system. And to honor God, they needed to devote themselves to the good of their believing masters, that they benefit them greatly. They were to be selfless, and they were to do the hard thing by thinking of others before themselves. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good. Make that your aim, regardless of situation. So healthy church life should also include the honoring of earthly masters. 
Let me give us three applications, and then we'll pray and go to the table. Number one, we have a glorious Savior King who graciously stands in authority over each one of us. King Jesus is the one who now is in the rightful place given by the Father, the name that is above every name, because he was the one who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, paying for our sins, rising again, being exalted by the Father back to life. And now he not only is our Savior, who has paid for our sins and made us right with God, but he is also the Lord, the King, who is over each and every one of us. And my friends, if you're here today and you have this crown of authority placed upon your own head and you have not acknowledged the crown that should be upon Christ's head over your life, then friend, please repent. Recognize that you are a rebel against God's authority. See your sinfulness and then see what Jesus has done, how he paid for your sins, and now he stands there as a righteous, good ruler, and he wants to give you the guidance and the leadership that you require. Give it to him. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Accept him as both your Savior and your Lord today. Do you bow down before the ultimate authority of your life, who is King Jesus? Do that, we pray. And then secondly, we have been given good shepherds by our Lord who deserve proper honor. One of the gifts of the gospel, and there's so many of them, aren't there? It's so rich. The, the diamond that is the gospel has so many glorious facets. One of the gifts of the gospel is that Jesus gives gifts to his church, meaning he gives certain types of people with certain types of gifts to his church. And one of the better ones he gives is he gives the church men who have been made able by the Spirit and who have been made qualified by the Spirit to become those who gently shepherd the church, like a man on a hillside with a crook, helping sheep get to the stream and then find the pleasant place to feed. He gives that to the church. Flesh and blood men who are meant to depict him before the church. Fallen men to be sure, but men who are gifted to the church to help the church see Jesus Christ better. So how are you honoring these men? Are you committed to honoring the Lord by carefully honoring these men. I get it. It is awkward to be one of those men and to ask you to do this today. At the same time, that's what God's word says. And I don't get to just skip over the end of chapter 5 because it makes me feel weird. Honor such men because the Bible says so. And see the wonderful return that God gives when his people are faithful and receive good shepherding. Third, we have people over us who deserve our respectful service. I praise God that we're not enslaved. I'm very thankful for that. And yet I'm also thankful that he has given us human demonstration of those who are over us. And we will always have those who are over us. And that we have the opportunity to submit to the Lord and honor the Lord through those people who are over us. So let me ask you, 
Are you committed to showcasing the gospel of God before everyone? Are you a tyrant toward the tyrant at your workplace? Or are you a man or a woman who says, it's so hard to like this guy, but I'm going to choose to love him because I want him or I want her to come to know Jesus Christ. Are you an evangelist everywhere you go, even at work? And then are you committed to showing brotherly love to every believer? God has given you believers who are over you, whether it be in the workplace or in the local church. Are you willing to show them honor, not because they're anything special in and of themselves. They're simply sinners who have been saved by grace, standing at the level playing field that is the foot of the cross, just like you. And yet God, for his good reasons, has put them in a position of authority. Will you respect it? Or will you, like everyone else in this world seems to want to do, say, no one's going to be over me? Oh, please, see what God does to lead his people by giving them people to lead them. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for being an awesome leader, for the example that we need in leadership. Where else could we possibly turn? Who else could we possibly mimic but you and anyone who resembles you? Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us as a church to resist the temptation of this world and be those who respect rightful authority over us. That we would stand out, Father, not as those who are rebellious, but those who are drastically countercultural because we are not rebellious. Help us, Lord, to seek to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. And give us, Lord, I pray, good men to be shepherds of our church. Thank you for the good men you have given to be shepherds of our church. And give us, I pray, if it be your will, kind and gentle leaders who are over us in our workplace and other areas. And help us, Father, to have patience and a biblical perspective when those individuals are not so good. We need your help, Lord. Guide us in the spirit, we pray. And we ask all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus.